All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 2. We're still in chapter 2. We will be for a few more weeks. In fact, we seem, it seems like we've been talking about God's wrath and, and God's judgment for, for a really long time. This week we had a, our staff meeting to plan this uh, Christmas service. Dure is taking the lead in that, and we kind of went through what we'd like to do. <clears throat> and then she sent an email out to all the people that are a part of it. My part is the closing. I've been given 10 minutes or less, and I am supposed to do more warm and fluffy things. Make people cry, but in a nice way. So, I got the email, and I just went and stood in her office door with my arms crossed and gave her like, what in the world are you talking about? Warm and fluffy? And she, all she said was, you got my email, didn't you? And she said she wants it to be not out of Romans 2. So whatever I say at the Christmas service cannot be from Romans 2. And she doesn't want people to cry like weeping and gnashing of teeth crying, but more like a Hallmark movie crying is what I understand. So I would invite you to that on the 18th. I don't think I've ever intentionally done warm and fluffy since I was dating. But, I mean, I'll... I can try. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But now is not the time for warm and fluffy. Now we're back to Romans chapter 2, which is really anything but. As Paul is extremely direct with everyone. You know, we haven't gotten to the good news of the gospel yet, but it seems that he is convinced that before we understand the good news, the table has to be set with the absolutely awful bad news of God's wrath and God's judgment. And so that's what we've been looking at. So we're in Romans chapter 2, verse 11 is where we will begin today, and we're going to read through 15. Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 11, for God shows no partiality, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I forgot to count uh, how many times the word law shows up in that passage, but it can certainly become confusing as you read it. So let's try to sort through all this if we can. Now, last week we ended our scripture reading with verse 11 because it seemed to really fit with what we were saying, and we're starting this week's with it because it fits here as well, because today we're going to introduce as one of the concepts we look at the idea of God's impartiality, the impartiality of his judgment. The literal meaning of the word partiality is to receive a face. To receive a face. And what it's talking about there is to give consideration to a person because of who he is. I mean, we see this 
idea of impartiality in the famous statue of justice. You remember, it's a lady, and she's holding the scales of justice, but she's blindfolded so as to indicate that she takes no account of who she's judging, who she's looking at. She's therefore not tempted to be partial either for or against that person. She cannot receive their face. She cannot see them. Some of the statues even have her hands bound to signify that she cannot take a bribe. So the, the whole idea of the, of the statue is that this justice signified by the statue is completely impartial. But unfortunately, even in the very best of human courts, there is partiality, but there will be none on God's day of judgment. Because God has perfect knowledge, and he has perfect righteousness, and you put those together, it makes it impossible for him to give a partial judgment. He can be nothing but impartial. Things that we take into consideration, like position, or education, or influence, or popularity, or physical appearance, all of those things affect how we view people today, but they will not have any bearing on God's decision concerning our eternal destiny. He will be impartial, impartial, exhibit impartiality. So there is one thing, though, that we see in today's passage, and that is he does make a distinction here between two groups of people. In Romans 2, Paul mentions these two distinct groups of sinners, those who have not had the opportunity to know God's law and those who have had such opportunity. He's speaking, of course, about the law given to Moses, given to the people of Israel. So what does the text say about these Gentiles? Next week, we'll dig more deeply into what he says about the Jewish people. We have a little of that this morning, but today we're mainly looking at what this text says about the Gentiles. Well, we already know that these Gentiles can't really say that they have no awareness of God. We looked at that in chapter 1. In verse 20, it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So that applies to Gentiles just like Jews, anyone. We are without excuse. God has made himself known. Here in verse 12, our text tells us of their end. And it uses a very powerful word, and the word is perish. Verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law, so here we're talking about the Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I mean, it can hardly be otherwise, can it? We've talked about many of these principles of God's judgment that throughout the second chapter of Romans. Now, when we read verse 7 and verse 10, if you have your Bibles, you can look back at those. In reading those, it almost seems like there's another way other than trusting Christ and that some people may gain salvation by living up to God's standards. Listen to verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then in verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also 
the Greek. So you might suggest that there are some, even outside the law, who've never received the law of God, who, despite this ignorance due to the uh, moral life that they've lived, living up to God's perfect standards, they therefore will be saved. But we talked about what Paul says about uh, mankind later in chapter 3, where he says, none seek after God. Verse 12 here tells us that this has to almost be considered a hypothetical case because no one can do it. In verse 12, again, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And we talked last week that if anyone actually could persist in doing good, there would be that reward of eternal life with God, but no one does. Therefore, all who sin without the law will also perish. Now, we've looked at some principles of God's judgment. We, we probably should review those very quickly before we get to today's. The first thing we learned was that God's judgment is according to truth. This is all the way back in verse 2. I mean, human judgment, if you've ever been in court, tries to live up to this standard, doesn't it? The first thing a witness is told is what? You're required to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But obviously, human judgment is at best based on partial truth. And it's often misled entirely when people either inadvertently or purposefully misrepresent the facts. God's judgment infinitely superior at this point. It is according to his full knowledge and perfect truth. I mean, no one is able to stand before God and say, no, you're wrong, I didn't do that. God's knowledge is perfect. His truth is perfect. All the secrets are known. All of our hearts are open to God. And no one will be able to lie to God. So his judgment will be according to truth. We also learn back in verse 5 that his judgment will be proportionate to human sin. Paul speaks, if you recall, about storing up wrath for yourselves. Those who sin much will be punished much, and those who sin less will be judged accordingly. The punishment of hell is not equal across the board. It will be proportionate The next thing also in verse 5 is that God's judgment is according to righteousness. Paul calls it God's righteous judgment. There will be nothing wrong about God's judgment. He is right. It will be according to the highest possible standard and the faultless moral code is righteous. In verse 11, which we opened with this week and closed with last week, God's judgment is impartial. In human courts, we often try to find some preferential treatment, don't we? And judges sometimes comply with that and give it. Not so with God. All will be judged according to the same impartial standards. God says, or Paul says, God shows no partiality. And we've already defined that and discussed this impartiality today. The fifth thing we can learn about God's judgment is that it is according to people's deeds. We saw this when we looked in verses 6 through 10. We'll look at it again next week as we begin in verse 12 and go forward. It's just interesting when you consider the number of verses that Paul has 
used to describe this and to teach it, it must have been a very important principle to him. Indeed, throughout Romans 2, you can see that he's making this point. Even back in verse 1, remember in verse 1, he's talking about people who try to excuse their wrongdoing by explaining that they have a firmer sense of what is right and wrong in their judging of others. And Paul's reply is this, is because they are, is that they are guilty because they practice the very same things. It is what they do. And you can see that it is also implied in verse 2 and repeated in verse 3. And then finally, when we get to verse 6, Paul just says that God will render to each one according to his works. So it's not what we know. It's not even what we say that we do that matters. It's how we actually perform. So those are principles we need to keep in mind as we continue to look at this idea of God's judgment. Now today, he introduces this idea of there being two groups. And we're going to look at one briefly and one a little more closely. The, the first group is what we could call sinners under the law. Sinners under the law. It's so hard for us to get rid of this sense that we are righteous in God's sight. Especially people like us, generally speaking, people who go to church every week are going to be more moral, you would assume. Not always, but you would assume that in most cases than people who don't. It's so hard for that idea to die with us, but as we read these verses, we can discern at once what Paul is dealing with and how he replies to it. Now, several weeks ago when we began chapter 2, we mentioned that I think he is mainly dealing, at least in the first half of the chapter, with pagans, virtuous pagans. You know, they're judging other people and finding them guilty which makes you assume that they at least believe they're not doing those things. But that's who he's dealing with in the first half of the chapter. I think in the second half, starting with verse 17 or so, he's dealing primarily with Jewish people. And although this is generally true, he is probably thinking of the Jews in this section. When I say those under the law, I'm talking about Jewish people. I mean, you can certainly predict their response to this. He has spoken of those who are under the law, and by that what I mean is exposed to the law. They've seen it. They have read it. They've heard it. And he says that those who are under or exposed to the law are perishing. The Jew would not want to accept that. That would be offensive to him. Because, because according to their teaching, salvation is by the law. And so the pious Jew would spend long hours meditating on the law, could always be found in the synagogue, and he would be attending to the reading and the explanation of the law. That's what they did. And I suppose Paul could almost hear these Jewish people gearing up for their response. They'd be talking about their accomplishments. It would be very much like the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that story? The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. That's in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 11. Or maybe Paul could remember Jesus' teaching about the rich young ruler. Also in Luke 18, just a few verses later where this young man said, all of these, talking about all the commandments I have kept since my youth. As a matter of fact, Paul probably had thoughts like this himself before he came to Christ. You remember where he is listing off his accomplishments of his Jewish life before he came to Christ in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now later, he's going to deal with the religious person's false hopes more directly. But here, he just focuses on their actual performance of these things. It's like he is saying, I know that you know the law, The question is, do you keep it? And so we see that in verse 13 that we read this morning where he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Not just hearers, but doers. Now what does that remind you of? Does that not sound like James the Apostle James, we studied this back, I don't know how many years ago, and we went through the book of James, chapter 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Doers, not hearers only. Paul said it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers who are justified. And when we get to the passage in James, there's a little nuance to the word hearers that is interesting. In fact, it's actually in both passages, James and here in Romans 2. So the word, the Greek word for hearing is not just means for hearing, but rather it means it was the word used for those who are required to listen for a living. That maybe their business is to listen. It involves an intensity of listening. You can compare it to the idea of a college student. Their primary purpose, they may not understand this, but their primary purpose is to go to class, and it's to listen to the teacher's instruction. And normally, they would also have the responsibility of being accountable for what they hear. They would be tested on it. You can compare that to someone who's simply auditing the class. All that they're required to do is to attend and listen. They take no tests. They receive no grades. There is no accountability. There is no intensity in their listening. In other words, they're just there to hear. The word in these passages is much more than that. It is those who listen intently. It is their business to listen. You see, God recognizes no mere auditors of his word. The more a person hears his truth, the more he is responsible for believing and for obeying it. So unless there is obedience, the more you hear, the greater the hearing, 
the greater the judgment. That's the point of this passage. And it's really the point at which all of us fall down, isn't it? We know a lot of stuff. The longer you've been in church, you probably know a lot of stuff. It seems that our rate of increase in obedience falls way short of our rate of increase in knowledge. And so since we are condemned by this law, by what we know, we need to seek another way of salvation. Entirely. Trying to live up to this law is not going to work as the Jewish people think it is. So we get to the next group and that we could call sinners apart from the law. You see, there's a problem here that Paul has to address and that is the problem of the Gentiles. They would excuse themselves from God's judgment. They would say, look, we, ne we never got the law. Hey, we agree with your judgment of the Jewish people, they have the law and they didn't obey it. In fact, some of them are even a little hypocritical about the law, wouldn't you say? But we never got it. And so, how can we be condemned? You see, the Jews had sinned under the law. The Gentiles didn't have it. Paul wrote in verse 12... All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Well, how's that fair? How can anyone be told that they are sinning apart from some kind of divine code or revelation? That's like disciplining your child for something you haven't told them is wrong, isn't it? Well, Paul answers this in verse 14 and in verse 15. He says this, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So his answer here has three parts. Let's take a look at those. First, he says the Gentiles even though they don't possess the law of God, it wasn't given to them, remember? They nevertheless have a law written on their hearts. I mean, you can probably think of these people throughout history. There have been many unbelievers who've been honest in their business dealings, who've been respectful of their parents, faithful to their wives and husbands. Maybe they even care for their children. They give generously to those who are in need all of which God's word commends. I mean, God's standard of justice is even reflected in some secular judicial systems where things like stealing and murder and various other forms of immorality are considered wrong and even illegal. Even pagan philosophies, both ancient and modern, sometimes have standards of ethics that closely parallel those in Scripture. This is all part of the proof that people have God's law written on their hearts, which is what it says there in verse 15. Therefore, if people never come to Christ for salvation, their good deeds will actually witness against them. They know what is right and wrong. 
Now, earlier we dealt with what we called natural revelation. And by earlier, I mean way earlier. That revelation that God gave of himself in creation. Do you remember? It says in chapter 1, verse 20, that it involved things like his eternal power and divine nature. That is, it confirms that there is a supreme being. But that's not what we're talking about here in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. In the earlier case, back in chapter 1, that information was sufficient to condemn someone because on its basis, what they see about God obligated them to seek him out and to thank him and to worship him, which they do not do. But here in chapter 2, we go beyond just natural revelation and awareness of God, and we now have a moral code that Paul says is possessed by all people. They may not have the revealed law of God, but they have something like it. They have what he calls a law for themselves, and that law condemns them. The second thing that they possess is a conscience. And that conscience can tell them that they ought to obey this law and condemn them when they do not. Gentiles, who do not have the privilege of having been given the law of God, still have this conscience, and it says that it bears witness to that law. I mean, the word conscience literally means knowledge with or co-knowledge. So <clears throat> the very idea behind this recognizes that we have this instinctive built-in sense of right and wrong, and what that does is it activates our guilt. The reason we feel guilt is because of our conscience. You can't make me feel guilt unless my conscience agrees with your accusation. You ever been accused of something you didn't do? Your response is not guilt. It's usually anger or something like that. How dare you accuse me of that? I wasn't even there. However, when the accusation is true, it is your conscience that activates guilt. Paul says you possess this conscience. Now, let's be honest, consciences can vary in sensitivity, and they can do so based on a couple of different bases. First, they can vary in sensitivity because of the degree of your knowledge about or feelings about right and wrong. Someone who knows very little about right and wrong, their conscience is not going to inform them to the same degree that someone who's an expert in it might. So that's the first thing. The second thing that can cause your conscience to vary in its sensitivity from person to person is whether your conscience is being obeyed or resisted. You see, the neglected conscience or the resisted conscience becomes more insensitive and will eventually stop giving you warning signals about wrongdoing. We'll look at a verse in a minute where it becomes seared. Now, if you know of anyone who has the medical condition called neuropathy, maybe from a disease like diabetes, it's usually in their feet or an extremity, then this is a physical example of this spiritual truth. Because usually it's in their feet, and the way it manifests is their feet become numb. And when your feet are numb, of course, you can't feel things that you should feel. Things like a blister, 
which for a normal person would require immediate medical treatment. You take care of it. You can't feel it. And so you don't know it's there unless you look every day. And so something as simple as a blister or a sore can become infected and can become much worse than the same issue with a healthy person. It's because you cannot feel. It is numb. Similarly, a dulled or a numbed conscience opens up the individual to so much greater danger because they no longer sense pain. They no longer sense the danger of choosing wrong over right. Now Paul, as I mentioned earlier, had, there's a verse about this. He describes heretics and apostates like this. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So that's a conscience. The third witness against this sinner is what we'll, we'll call it our memory. In verse 15, it talks about their conflicting thoughts which accuse or even excuse them. This is our memory. You could call it our contemplations. And why is this important? It's because it is something within us that can and will condemn us even without an external judging word from God. You see, your memory works in partnership with your conscience. It brings back to your mind the things you've done, and then your conscience will judge you for that. Or it'll excuse you for that, is what the verse says. So what a picture we have here of these three accusers, the law written on our heart, our conscience, and even our memory. These combine to prove that even a person without the law will perish. For these reasons, no person can stand guiltless before God's judgment. I'm going to ask those who are serving our Lord's Supper to come and prepare for that. I do want to close, though, this cannot be just about God's judgment. I want to talk about the term shall not perish. What do we do with this information? Well, we should be led away from attempts to justify ourselves by our work like the Jewish people were, may still do, or to excuse ourselves as those who don't know the law might do. Instead, we should turn to Christ. That is the only place salvation can be found. At the very beginning of our time this morning, I referred you to verse 12. It says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. You see, apart from Christ, all will perish. But whenever we see that word perish with all of its proper force and all of the terror associated with it, we must also think of probably the best known verse in the Bible spoken by our Lord himself in John 3.16 where he basically says this is not necessary. You don't have to perish. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, John 3.16 speaks of two destinies. 
eternal life and perishing, the very ends Paul speaks about in chapter 2 of Romans, in verse 7 and in verse 12. You see, from birth, we're all headed toward that second end, destined to perish. Perish miserably without God and without hope. Ephesians 2.12 says that we are without hope in this world. But Jesus died to make another end possible, another destiny for us. And it is the way of atonement with Jesus dying in our place, taking our punishment upon himself. All of the terror of God's judgment, of his wrath, now taken on by him. This is a wonderful end for us. But still, it doesn't begin with comfort, does it? It begins with the knowledge of sin so that we might turn from that sin to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is laboring to teach us here in Romans 2.